This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion, addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at standupforthetruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to another podcast. We thank you so much for tuning in to Stand Up For The Truth, and thank you for praying for this ministry and actually for all Christian ministries that are trying to do God's work out there. The opposition is constant, and at times the warfare really intensifies. So we are uh, we we welcome your prayers at all times. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're talking about the importance of educating your children and raising them up in the Word of God with the biblical Christian worldview in these crazy times that we're living in and a very unique cultural circumstances, and even in the world today, your kids need a solid foundation. Uh, we've got a great guest today. Father, thank you for a new day, a new day to uh, hopefully uh, seek your face, to love you, to do your work in our lives. And uh, Lord, we we need you and we recognize our need for you. We can't do it without you. I don't know how people live that have no hope in Jesus, have no hope for the future, but their emphasis is only in this life. Lord, we thank you so much that we have a great inheritance to look forward to and eternity with you, God. This this life is fleeting, and we recognize that. We pray in Jesus' name that you would encourage those who are struggling in their faith right now. Lift We lift those up to you, brothers and sisters, people who believe in Jesus, who are battling fear and battling uncertainty, maybe worrying about the unknown, about the future. Um, Lord, we ask that you touch them right now. Make your presence known to them. Walk with them. Remind them that you are their strength. And we also ask, Lord, that you would uh, give our leaders in this country and in each state wisdom. And, Lord, please uh, soften their hearts. Some of them are uh, way out of line in what they're doing in their power grabs. And, Lord, it's, it's not surprising to you, and we shouldn't be surprised either, Father. That's the heart of man. Uh, we just pray that you direct them and give us wisdom on how to respond one day at a time, Lord. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to do the work that you've called us to do because our mission as Christians never changes. Our methods might change, but, Lord, we know that uh, we, you put your word in our hearts and help us to speak it and help us to live it out just as important. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, excited to have Israel Wayne back with us. He's an author and conference speaker, director of Family Renewal. He has a passion for defending the Christian faith and promoting a biblical worldview. He's the author of many, many books, Homeschooling from a Biblical Worldview, uh, Full-Time Parenting, A Guide to Family-Based Discipleship, Questions God Asks, uh, Education, Does God Have an Opinion?, and, of course, uh, last time he was on with us, we talked about his book, Answers for Homeschooling, and the top questions that critics ask about uh, educating your kids at home. Um, he's been a regular columnist for Homeschool Digest, Homeschool Enrichment, and the Old Schoolhouse magazines. He's the site editor for ChristianWorldview.net, and he and his wife, Brooke, live in southwestern Michigan. His new book is called Raising Them Up. Parenting for Christians. Israel Wayne, uh, good morning. Welcome back to Stand Up for the Truth. Hey, it's great to be back with you. Hey, brother. Thank you for taking the time with us today. Um, 
I just want to reiterate something I read in the notes. How many children do you guys have? <laughs> we have 10 children. 10 children. Now, what are their ages? So our oldest is almost 20 years old, and our youngest is about 16 months. And so uh, we are totally engaged in this parenting <laughs> uh, parenting process right now. We've, we've got... Basically, if you have a child still at home, uh, we have children their age that they they would get along with. So, <laughs> wow, that's so funny. So you, this has been your life, you guys, uh, for decades, and you probably have a lot of wisdom when it comes to raising godly children to pass on to people. No, nobody's perfect, and uh, we just thank you for what you can offer Christian parents. Um, we're we wanted to talk about your new book. Now, this is brand new, right? This just came out this month? Yeah, it's really, really new. Raising Them Up, Parenting for Christians. I just want to, before we get into some other questions I have for you, I'm just looking at chapter one. Tell us what that means. It's losing a generation. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of disturbing statistics that talk about young people who have been raised by Christian parents, raised in the church, that are walking away from the Christian faith. And both the Barna Group and Pew Research, who are probably the two leading research groups related to the evangelical church, both say that about 70% of all church youth end up abandoning Christianity before they graduate high school. And then of the 30% who still have their profession of faith intact, uh, when they enter secular university or college, an additional 70% will deny their Christian faith by the end of their freshman year of college. And then Barna says that really only about 9% of church youth will go through K-12 uh, government schooling and then secular college or university uh, and still hold to the basic tenets of Christianity uh, after all that process. So we're basically losing about 9 out of 10 in terms of orthodoxy. Uh, and, and adherence to a an evangelical Christian statement of faith. Losing a generation. I want to reiterate what you just said. We are basically losing nine out of ten children. And I don't know, Israel, maybe you can help me on this. I, I've read a lot of different articles and studies in the last decade, and it seems like the age is getting younger and younger when kids start falling away from the faith. And it seems like, um, I think in the 80s it was, if not early 90s, that it says after one year of college, a Christian youth will fall away. But let's talk about when they start doubting and why. I know this will take us away from your book for a few minutes, but it's important to talk about when they start doubting and why. I've read that in middle school, children from Christian homes begin doubting their faith when they are in the government school. Why? One reason, they're teaching evolution and not intelligent design, so all they're hearing about is what the, what they teach in schools and not necessarily what the truth is. So I'd love to get your take on that, when they start doubting and why. Right. I actually have a chapter in my new book, um, Raising Them Up, that's called Why Some Children Leave the Faith. And oh, good. I list maybe 10, ten issues or so in that book. Chapter but, 14. Um, but there's a great book that uh, Ken Ham wrote that was published by Masterbooks, and it was, or New Leaf Press, I can't remember which one, probably Masterbooks, uh, same publisher that I work with. Um, but but it was called, um, uh, oh, Brain Freeze. Uh, already Gone. Already Gone. Yes. Already Gone, yeah. And so, you know, he talks about in Already Gone how it's in middle school, really, that these young people 
uh, start deciding that they don't want to be part of Christianity, but it doesn't become overt until they're old enough to start making their own decisions as far as whether they continue to go to church and that kind of thing. Uh, so, so he says, you know, of, of the young people who are still sitting in the pews, still going to church with their parents, two-thirds of those, 66%, have decided uh, church won't have any part of my life mm. as soon as I'm old enough to choose on my own. Those are not those that have already left the building. Uh, so sometimes we look at our church buildings and we say, well, I don't know about all those stats. I mean, we have a lot of young people in our church, and you know, I, I see the halls and classes filled with young people. I don't see some great catastrophe. But what he's saying is that of the ones that are there, 66% have already decided to leave. They just haven't done it yet. But as far as reasons, I, I think influence, and I have a whole chapter in raising them up called The Power of Influence. And influence, I think, is huge because in order to be able to have an influence on somebody else, you have to have access to them. You know, like with your listeners, um, many of them have never heard me before. They don't know who I am. So I haven't had any influence in their life. So in order for me to influence them, I have to have access to them. And, and that requires, you know, some availability and then some time. Mm-hmm. And then I have to be able to contribute to their life in some way that they view as positive. And so when you think about access and availability and time, uh, as parents, we want to have the most uh, influence that we possibly can. So we have to utilize those methods. We have to utilize those tools. But in reality, you know, the average school student spends seven and a half hours away from their parents in school. Right. And then they come home and they spend seven and a half hours in video games and social media, television, screen time, basically, multimedia screen time after school every day. Seven and a half hours wow. after school. Wow. So you're, you're talking about 15 hours of input, and in many cases, anti-Christian indoctrination that's taking place every day of their life. And when you add that up, you know, that seems like a lot, 15 hours a day. But when you add that up, it's like 25,000 hours of anti-Christian instruction that they get before they finish high school. Mm. And the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics just came out with a, a report and said the average dad today spends 23 minutes engaging meaningfully with his or her child, and the average mom is now an hour. And oh so, you know, you put you put 23 minutes a day up against 15 hours, and there's just no way that a dad can ever really balance that scale, or even a mom can balance that scale and be the most influential person in their child's life. They They just simply aren't uh, available. They aren't. Uh, they aren't influencing their child using the the tools of of time and encouragement and affirmation. Somebody else is doing that, and the, and so someone else is winning. Essentially, the the hearts of their children. Wow, that that's sobering. You just explained this concept of hours of influence, and in the public schools, they are going to be influenced. And it's not just the instruction in the classroom. No. It's the peers, your children's friends, most likely uh, yeah. unbelievers, um, yeah. some atheists, some very affiliated with the LGBT movement. Whether they are deep into that or not, they have been influenced by it. So these are the kids your children are hanging around. So it's not just what the teacher says or what the curriculum is. So this is an uphill battle for Christian parents, isn't it, Israel? Absolutely. I mean, in every classroom, you have three teachers. You have the person who stands up front and says, I'm the teacher. You have the textbook, which is also a teacher. 
then you have the one that actually really influences the child, and that's the peer group. Wow. And parents completely underestimate the power of influence. But I'm gonna. This is slightly reductionistic, but I'm just gonna put it out there because I actually believe it to be generally true. That whoever spends the most time with your child and affirms your child the most wins. Hmm. And so, if that's you, if you spend more time with your child than anyone else in their life, and you affirm them more than anyone else, you will have the most influence in your child's life. If you don't, someone else will. Hmm. You know, again, I'm overstating it just slightly yes. um, because it's not an absolute universal principle, but it's generally true. And people think that they can ignore that that foundational principle of relationships and still come out ahead. And we're just finding that nine out of ten Christian parents aren't coming out ahead. They they've ignored the fundamental principles and building blocks of relationship and, and still expected to reap a harvest. And unfortunately, they're reaping the harvest of having somebody else be the most influential person in their child's life. And their child gets to 15, 16, 17 years old. Child doesn't like them, doesn't want to spend time with them, doesn't respect them, doesn't embrace their beliefs and values, doesn't care to listen to them. Uh, they just don't have influence, and they don't understand why. Mm-hmm. They can't understand why doesn't my 15-year-old want to listen to me? Well, mm-hmm. you know, you you have to put the time in on the front end. And that's hard. It, I can imagine it, the d- amount of discipline it takes. Um, we're speaking with Israel Wayne today. Uh, his new book is out, and it's called Raising Them Up. Parenting for Christians. It's brand new. He's the site editor for ChristianWorldview.net. Um, you talk about gospel-centered parenting. Um, you, you talk about that in your book, and you, you've talked about that in the past. Uh, can you describe what that looks like, and is this possible if you are not homeschooling? Well, you know, um, how, how do you fulfill... Well, first of all, let me ask, answer your second question. Okay. How do you fulfill the the Deuteronomy 6 mandate to Mm. teach your children from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, uh, whether you're in your house or outside of your house, teach your children God's commands? How do you do that (laughs) if you're not with your children? They're not with you. So so that's the first question that I would ask. The second question, uh, or the second response I would have to that second question is if you look at Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the mocker or the scoffer. So we're told to avoid an environment where there are teachers who are giving ungodly instruction or ungodly counsel. We're told to avoid a scenario where there is a social environment that is sinful. we're told that we're supposed to avoid an environment where there are students who are scoffing and mocking at authority, uh, who don't res- who don't have the fear of God, that don't have respect for their teachers and for their parents. We're, we're told to avoid all that, but then we're given the antithesis of that, and we're said, but instead, his delight should be in the law of the Lord, and on this law, he should meditate day and night. Now, how can you meditate day and night on the law of the Lord if the law of the Lord is not even allowed in your school? Good question. You can't. Yeah. So basically, we ignore and uh, and and break the and violate the principles that are given in the first part of Psalm one there, and then we can't fulfill the second one because of the environment. So there are very specific commands that are given to us in Scripture, uh, and that's what my book, Education, Does God Have an Opinion, deals with. It's really just this question of what does the Scripture say. 
is the prescribed method of how we're supposed to disciple our children. And I find that as evangelical Christians, we, we, we are completely ignorant, first of all, of what the Scripture even says about how to teach and instruct our children. Mm. Uh, but then we're willfully just um, defiant of what we know it says <laughs> oh because God. because it's not convenient. Right. It's it's hard. Yes. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like G.K. Chesterton said about Christianity. Christianity hasn't been tried and found lacking. It's been found difficult and left untried. And so the same thing has been true of us discipling our children. There's a there's an investment there. You know, there was a, a major Christian ministry that did a survey and asked the question, you know, would you give your children an exclusively Christian education if you didn't have to pay for it? And Wait a minute, say that again? Say that again? Would you give your children an exclusively Christian education if you didn't have to pay for it out of your own pocket? And 77% of Christian parents said, yes, I would give my child an exclusively Christian education as long as I didn't have to personally pay for it. Oh, my goodness. 77%. I mean, that's three quarters. Yeah. So, so these people who say, you know, I think uh, I'm sending my children to an anti-Christian school because I think that's best for them. I don't buy that. I no. think, three, you know, three quarters admit they don't yeah. think that's best. Right. But ultimately, they don't want to have to shell out for an exclusively Christian education. So it really comes down to what do we love the most? You know, is it really uh, our children coming to know Christ that drives us? Or is it we want to be comfortable and affluent and we want to live the American dream? There will be sacrifices to give our children exclusively Christian education. But I, I think Scripture mandates it. I, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that we're uh, allowed to give our children an anti-Christian education. And in fact, I see many, many passages that forbid it. Absolutely. Again, you know, education does not have an opinion, goes into that pretty extensively. I don't have time here. But, uh, but if, if you just ask yourself, where in Scripture am I ever allowed or encouraged to give my children an anti-Christian education, you just don't find that. We're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the foundation of all knowledge, wisdom, and learning. Right. We t- apply that to adults, which we should, and we apply we apply discipleship principles to adults. But we forget young children. There are children. They're Christian kids, and they need these same principles as well. I want to reference uh, Deuteronomy four. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy six, which you um, alluded to earlier. Very important scriptures, friends, for you to get to know if you don't have those memorized. Deuteronomy six. Cha- uh, let's see, verses four through seven. Deuteronomy six, and then um, I want to ask you something. You brought up Ken Ham and Barna, and we've only got a, a minute and a half here, but so we can go move on in the next segment. According to this survey, recent survey, 44% of Americans believe Jesus Christ sinned while on the earth. That's not what Scripture teaches, of course, but f- almost half. 44% of Americans, not Christians, but Americans. So we we can read into that a little bit that Christians are not really influencing the country, at least with the truth of God's Word, as we potentially could. What do you take away from that, Israel? Well, 51% of churched youth who are still attending church don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. How many? 51, 51%. 51%. 51% believe that Jesus sinned at some point during his life. And 65%, church youth. And 65% don't believe the Holy Spirit is a real entity. So if you're a church youth and you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you believe he sinned during his lifetime, and you don't believe there is a Holy Spirit, why in the world would you remain in the Christian faith? I know I wouldn't if I didn't believe those things. Hmm. Wow, that's a good question. 
So something is missing. There's a, a an education gap. There's a theological uh, gap. There's a lack in uh, teaching and discipleship, obviously, and we don't need to get into that, hammer all that out here. But uh, we have to take a break. We're talking to Israel Wayne. His brand-new book is called Raising Them Up, uh, Parenting for Christians. A whole lot more when we come back on Stand Up for the Truth. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up for the Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Our guest is Israel Wayne, author and, uh, of course, a dad of 10 children. Uh, him and his wife are busy, busy Christian parents, and the book is uh, Raising Them Up. It is brand new. You can get it where good books are sold. Before we get back into some of the chapters and the content in your book, Israel, um, Linda Harvey over at Mission America writes a lot about the influence of the LGBT movement in public school curriculum and um, what they're teaching children now, and even during the shutdown, so to speak, quote-unquote, they are still reaching kids through email and through these websites that they're they're directing kids to. For example, one of these books is called They, She, He, Me, Free to to Be, and it's, uh, of course, a transgender, uh, gender fluidity uh, concept, that agenda is not going to go away, and just because kids have been out of school for a month or more, it hasn't gone away. How do you? What what advice would you give Christian parents, uh, knowing that this is not just something? It's moral relativism. It's not true, but it's coming at the kids not just through the public schools, but through online, you know, videos through public. Um, I'm sorry, primetime television, and like we said earlier, their peers who have already fell for the lies of this movement? Well, I think parents are somewhat aware, but I also think they're very ignorant. Um, C.S. Lewis one time said that if parents of every generation knew what was taught in their children's schools, the history of education would be quite different. Mm. But I find that parents are not merely ignorant, they're willfully ignorant. In other words, they're they're disturbed by it, but they actually don't really want to know the facts. They don't want to know the details. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was in Springfield, Missouri, with a friend of mine who is a professor at uh, University of Missouri, and he's a Christian. And we did a seminar tour through a bunch of evangelical churches in that area. And what he would do in every town where we were uh, speaking in these churches, he would go to their local public school, he would take out the required reading that was in the literature for that, say, seventh grade, something fifth grade, whatever. And he would photocopy excerpts from these books and also from the sex education books. And during the seminar, he would show uh, pictures of and excerpts of the required reading for the fifth graders, the seventh graders, etc. Well, it turned out that we got kicked out of a bunch of the churches because people went to their pastors and said, uh, these people are, are promoting pornography in our churches. And the pastor said, you, you can't be talking about these things here. You can't be showing these things here. And we said, but, but these are adults, and their children are in the schools. And wow. fifth graders and seventh graders are required to read these books. And they said, yeah, well, we don't want you here talking about that. We have people in this church who are uh, teachers and administrators and principals in these schools, and they say that's not going on. They say that, that those things aren't being taught, and so you guys have to leave. And so 
you know, there's just this suppression of the truth that parents just don't want to know what's actually going on and what's being taught in their schools. And not just the schools, but again, Netflix and social media and right. music and all those things. And so and I have a whole chapter in uh, Raising Them Up called Techno Parenting, where I just talk about the influence of all the stuff that's coming through the media as well. You have to be engaged. You just cannot be passive. You can't assume we're living in the Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith era. It's just a new world. It, this is not the generation that you grew up in. This is a completely new world. It sounds like you have two really good chapters on this in a row, techno parenting followed by teaching your children about purity. And uh, 22 chapters in the book, raising them up. How many pages is the book, Israel? It's a little over 200 pages. Okay. It's almost 200 pages. But, uh, I'm looking here, 180 pages. A lot of good information. Um, let's go on to uh, another topic, and let's jump right to, unless you have something you want to share about the youngest of children, but teenagers, teen years can be the most difficult. I've heard, I've read the stories, of the parents pulling their hair out. You know, that's just a very difficult time for some teenagers. Um what are some of the changes that you suggest Christian parents make as they shift from raising young children to teenagers? Well, right now I have an almost 20-year-old, I have an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, wow. a 10-year-old, <laughs> and so on. Did you get the picture? So yeah. I, I have up to my eyeballs right now and hormones uh, in our house. But, you know, it's been a blessing. I, I remember when my children were born, you know, people say, oh, they're cute now because they're babies, but, you know, just wait until they become toddlers, and then, you know, it becomes terrible, and, you know, well, just wait until they get to be five, six years old, and then you'll find out what it's really like, and then the naysayer said, well, you know, just wait till puberty, and then you'll see, and, you know, now they're saying, well, yeah, we'll just wait till they get out on their own, and then you'll find out, and I, just, I found there are naysayers, I think, at every stage and level of, of development, and yeah, there's difficulties and challenges, but I really believe that um, this whole teenage rebellion thing that we've accepted within the evangelical church as normal and normative doesn't have to be normal and normative. Um, we have not experienced that by God's grace. We have, I have a wonderful relationship with my teenagers. They're a blessing. I'm getting to reap the harvest now of, of the labor that I put in when they were young. And so I, mm. I think the thing is, when we're negligent, in those early years, then, yeah, it comes back to roost in a major way in the teen years. Um, but it's. It, but let me say this. You know, some parents will find themselves like, well, that's all fine and good, but I've got a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. What do I do now? Like, you know, maybe I made mistakes when they were younger, but what do I do now? And there is hope. Um, there's definitely a way to turn the ship around. I, I draw from my own experience. When I was 15 years old, I had a strained relationship with my own mother to where we couldn't even have a decent conversation. It was so strained. Mm. And, and, you know, God enabled us to, to turn that around. So I talk about some of the principles of, of doing that within the book. Uh, but you have to shift from, from parenting with control to parenting with influence. And influence is like a commodity that you buy with time and affirmation. So the more influence you have, the more successful parenting in the teen years is going to be. Influence, influence, influence. Somebody is influencing, obviously adults even, but somebody is influencing your children. I want to take a step, a few steps back to a topic we um, touched on a little bit. I think it's too important to move on from this, and you've got so much information in your book that can help parents to 
help their children navigate through the ever-expanding world of digital screen time and cultural influence. Um, I know there's not a simple solution to that, Israel, but can you give maybe a, a little insight on th- such an important discipline when it comes to just the barrage of information and distraction that's coming at adults and children, children especially. Right. Well, in the big picture, what I try to do as a template is to encourage my young people to think of technology as a tool. And so the goal of a tool is to produce something. I think people have used technology primarily to be entertained. Mm-hmm. And I teach my children that there's there's two different mentalities that they can grow up with. They can grow up with a producer mentality or a consumer mentality. And all of us are consumers to some extent. We have to be. We, we buy things. We consume things. But I want my children to have a mentality of being a producer. And so I want them to think of technology if they have a computer or an iPad or a phone. What can I use this tool to produce? Or, or what can I produce with this tool? And so uh, that's just a different mindset than how can I just sit here and vegetate uh, staring at a blank, staring at a, a moving screen. And so I think that is, is part of it, is that I teach them, you, you need to be thinking about how can I use this to glorify God? How can I use this to love and serve other people? Uh, what skills can I develop to make the world a better place using this technology? And so that's an important part of it. And then, of course, on the entertainment side of it, realizing that has to be limited. You know, I like what Ravi Zechariah said, where he said that uh, that work is central to the life of the Christian, and entertainment is peripheral, whereas for the world, entertainment is central, and work is a means to that end. Hmm. <laughs> so that whole, li- we live for Friday so we can just veg out and, you know, in entertainment, that's not a Christian worldview. That's so good. I'm just thinking about that, <laughs> taking a couple of seconds and thinking about what you just said. Um, along these lines that we're talking about digital screen time and how influential that is um, with all the other things coming against our kids, the, a lot of people want, and I understand the desire to have a porn-free society, um, not going to happen, But and, and I'm not a pessimist. I'm just kind of being real here. It's out there, and... Christian parents can only do so much. You cannot be with your kids at all times. So am I wrong to assume, Israel, that most children have or will come across pornography at some point, whether that's with a friend or whether that's on their iPhone or something on the computer? Um, what kind of conversations do you need to have with your kids? And is there something I'm missing? Is it, am I being too simplistic in this question? Yeah, I think the average age now for exposure to pornography is the age 11. So kids have access to it earlier. I thought it would be younger than that. Yeah, on a practical level, um, I, I think you have to make sure that you're limiting as much as possible the availability of that. I mean, we work really diligently to make sure that all of our devices that are used in our home have both filtering and accountability software not just filtering, but Mm. filtering and accountability. So that's part of it. But then also having the conversation about what's going on in the heart. And that's why gospel-centered parenting is so important, because it's not merely the sin that's out there in the evil world somewhere. Um, Sin is lurking in the human heart. And so we have to teach our children 
what to do and how to handle situations, you know, when they're exposed to something that's going to be harmful for them and, and give them a way to navigate through that. So, you know, locking down uh, technology is helpful, but ultimately we have to make sure we're focused on the heart as well. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. Okay, let's take it another step. You said age 11, but yet we've read a lot of information and we've even seen court cases and parents at school board meetings opposing sex ed curriculum and under the guise of health or whatever to children younger than that, much younger. I mean, you know, kindergarten and others, they're starting to talk about introduce the gender fluidity like we talked about earlier they're reaching kids younger and younger. So even though maybe at around age 11, a pornography on their own personal computers is readily available or maybe they have more access to it, however you just explained that, we know it's true from the public schools what they're teaching, how they're introducing these health or know your body or um, you, you can be whatever you want to be gender-wise. That's much, much younger than 11. How do you uh, suggest Christian parents deal with that? Well, I'm going to suggest something that will make people mad at me, but Uh I'm comfortable with that. (laughs) Um, You need to get your kids out of government schools. (laughs) You just need to pull them out because it's not going to get better. I mean, we've had 40 years of people sending their six-year-olds to the schools to be missionaries, and we're losing nine out of ten of them. This is not working. You know, it's like the Scripture says in in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so, you know, these, this effectiveness of these young people going in as missionaries uh, and evangelists when they're ill-equipped, unprepared, untrained. A six-year-old is not equipped to stand up to a 40-year-old atheist teacher and a classroom of 30 to 40 students who mock them for their beliefs. It's just it's foolishness. I wanna... you know, We don't spend six-year-olds out to, to warfare. Right. We, we, we wait till they're adults. I want to emphasize what you just said, um, uh, because we're not sending them to a foreign country to be missionaries. But the idea is one of the pushbacks to uh, homeschooling is some parents will say, well, if we take our Christian children out of the public schools, there will be no salt and light. They'll, right. There'll be no, people won't hear the gospel. Well, adults aren't even being salt and light in our society. Look at the culture. They're not hearing the gospel as it is. Go ahead, Israel. Yeah. I mean, these parents who are saying my six year old is going to go as a missionary. How many people have those parents led to Christ in the last six months? Ooh. You know, I mean, it's just it's just an excuse. Like I said, 77 yeah. percent said they choose Christian education if they didn't have to pay for it. It's smoke and mirrors is really what it is. And the, the schools are not becoming more Christian. I mean, we have 85% of all evangelical Christians send their children to government schools, 85%. And the schools are not becoming more Christian. You don't have revival breaking out in the schools. You don't have droves of, of young people who are coming to Christ. Because It happens on occasion. I don't deny that. It happens, and I'm thankful for that when it happens. But what we have is 9 out of 10 Christian youth uh, no longer adhering to a basic Christian statement of faith after four years of college. And so there's just no way that uh, we can continue to use the same methods that bring about these results and and expect that there will be change, that something different will happen. You know, that's the definition of insanity, to keep doing what doesn't work and expect a different result. And so what we have to do is we have to find out uh, how can we align with what Scripture prescribes. You know, the the Proverbs 13.20 says, if you walk with wise people, you'll become wise. 
but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Mm. And the scripture describes fools as those who say in their heart there is no God, which is what much of the atheistic school system is all about, that God is either non-existent or he's irrelevant. Uh, and, and then, and then you have the classroom where, you know, the scripture says that in Proverbs 22:15 that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So we have these parents who, who put their child who has foolishness bound up in their heart in a classroom with 30 or 40 other children who have foolishness bound up in their heart. And they think, oh, my children need this for good socialization. Uh, you know, really? basically you're, you're going to put them in there with a teacher that the Bible def- defines as a fool and with 30 or 40 students that the Bible says has foolishness bound up in their heart, and you think wisdom is going to come out of that. Mm. It's just not a, it's not a prescription or a recipe for success. No, and I want to reiterate, we understand that there's a lot of uh, Christian teachers that uh, yeah. listen to this program, and we're not yeah. hammering the teachers necessarily. The public school system is flawed. In my opinion, it's beyond redemption and the system. And they're, they're fighting with two hands tied behind their back because of what they can and cannot say or teach. They can't mention God in some classes. Um, my parents were both teachers, 30 plus years in education in the 1960s and 1970s. Even things were changing at that point. It's a very different time today because as we know in the early 1960s when they, the court cases came about to remove God and the, and, uh, the, the prayer, voluntary prayer, from public schools and the separation of church and state lie was uh, pushed and promoted. And uh, people are still confused about that today. So when we talk to, I'm talking to Israel Wayne here, the book, very important book on raising them up, educating your children, parenting for Christians. A lot of that has to do with teaching them the truth from God's word, teaching them true unedited history, which you will not get that in the public schools. They will now get a history that has been edited, doctored, um, changed, transformed to a progressive worldview a lot of times, environmentalism, uh, like you said before, the LGBT, uh, quote, science, they, they supposedly do not allow the Bible because, you know, the Bible isn't true, so you can't talk about creation or intelligent design, you can talk about creation as far as evolution. So Israel, there's a lot going on that has changed. So I just wanted to say that we need to take a break. I'm sorry. Um, I got on a rampage there, but we need to take a break. But I just did want to say my parents were both teachers. I am not against teachers. There are Christian teachers in there, but there are some who don't know any better in the public schools. They are going along with what they're told to teach, whether that be common core curriculum or this progressive worldview. They've been taught to buy into this. Israel Wayne, the book is called Raising Them Up. We've got a lot more to talk about as soon as we come back on Stand Up For The Truth. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. We're speaking with Israel Wayne. The brand new book is called Raising Them Up, Parenting for Christians. And we are going to get to this question in just a couple minutes. I'm going to ask Israel what he wishes he could tell his 25-year-old self about parenting or Christian parenting. But first, something you said when we were on break, Israel, I really want to talk about that. I understand more uh, about this resistance to homeschooling. Why? Because you stated a very important fact. There's a huge percentage of employment that the public schools in America offers Americans, so they don't want to come against it. Yeah, the, the public school system is the largest employer in the United States. 
There are more employees that work for the government school system than any other industry. Wow. And so people are very hesitant to be critical of what's putting food on the table. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. And I think yes. there are also people who are very sincere in their desire to help students. You know, they love students. They want to encourage literacy. They want to encourage children to be educated. But but in my view, they're they're on a train that's going south, and they're trying to go north. You know, and, and so they're, they're trying to be reformers within a system that fundamentally will not and cannot be reformed. You know, government schooling is socialistic by nature. And so even if we reform it and make a more conservative form of socialism, it's still socialist at the end of the day. You know, Jesus never prescribed a socialist, government-funded, government-controlled educational system. You don't find that prescribed in Scripture. So, so I think these very well-intentioned, godly, Jesus-loving Christians are trying to reform a system that will never be reformed, and they're frustrated by it. And I have some of my best friends in the world are public school teachers, and, and they're frustrated by the limitations that they have there. I think they can do some good on a micro level, but they will never reform the system. The system will go in the trajectory that it was created by the founders to go. I mean, people like Horace Mann, who started it, John Dewey. These are God-haters who wanted to create a socialist America, mm-hmm. and they wanted to use the school to do it. Yeah. And so the school has been set on a trajectory from which it will never return. So, so if there are parents or, or you know, adults who feel compelled by God to go into that system as a missionary, well, fine, you know, do that. But that's a totally different paradigm than having an ill-equipped child being in that environment. It's just not the same thing. Thank you for explaining that. I appreciate that. And I needed to be reminded of that. I didn't realize how huge uh, the um, entity <laughs> of the uh, public school system, the government education in America was. And I, it, it makes total sense. Um, what, so what do you wish you could tell your 25-year-old self about parenting? I know you've learned a lot of lessons throughout the years, Israel. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I would do differently if I could go back is I would lighten up. I would not be as as intense about everything. <laughs> you know, I, I, when my I first had a, a child or two, uh, I just had this expectation of my children are going to be perfect. I'm going to be the perfect parent. I'm going to do everything right. And I put a lot of pressure on myself and therefore a lot of pressure on my children. And I don't know that I would have um, parented that much differently except that I would have tried to have more fun with mm-hmm. my children. I would have enjoyed them more. I probably would have, have not so much corrected less, but I just would have been, uh, I would have been kinder. I would have been gentler. I would have, um, I would have spoken more softly. I, I just would have looked for more opportunities to just engage and enjoy my children as opposed to looking for everything wrong that they did so that I could be on top of it and correct it. Uh, I, I think I was just leaning so hard because I wanted mm-hmm. to be a good parent, and I think right. I was trying so hard to be a good parent. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I wouldn't have been more lenient necessarily, but I, I think I would have just created more of a culture of enjoyment. Isn't that universal pretty much, though, that the, the parents are – they tend to be the most either strict or the hardest on the oldest or the firstborn? Absolutely. Mm. We, we want to you know, turn out these perfect kids and expectations are so high and everybody's watching us and <laughs> we want to make a good impression on our friends and in-laws and you know, all that. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the, the other tendency is that we're sometimes too lenient and too easy on the youngest ones. Mm. And so sometimes they grow up rather spoiled. And so you have the, the baby of the family is always the, the brunt of the jokes that they got away with everything. <laughs> that's not a good that's not a good paradigm swing either. But. Uh, but, but I think there can be balance where, you know, we can still be the parent, have boundaries and guidelines and rules, uh, 
but we can enjoy our children and have fun at the same time. Uh, in our culture, we're kind of being conditioned, or we have been for so many years, um, for entertainment. Um, we are easily distracted. So I want to get to, before we run out of time, uh, one of the chapters in your book is called, um, where is it, um, How I Taught My Children to Sit Still and Be Quiet. Now, of course, if you've got to start that young. Well, I understand that with, with your kids, but can you give us a couple of pointers from that chapter? Because that is foundational. If, if, they, if you can't get them to sit still and pay attention if, uh, with all these distractions and everything else going on that they're used to, you're not going to really be effective in teaching them or educating them, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, one way we've done that is through daily family Bible study and daily family devotions. And we set aside like a half an hour a day where we get together, we open up the Word of God, we read it, we sing, we pray. Uh, and so our children have learned from the time they're born to just sit with us. And this is a time when we're going to be quiet. We're not going to be on the floor playing with Legos. We're going to be sitting, listening. And so what it's done is it's given them the ability to even sit with us during church service. They, they come to uh, with us to Big People Church, and from the age of three on, all of our children have been able to sit through an hour, hour and a half service with no problem because they practice it every day at home. Uh, whereas most people, you know, they have a five, six, seven, eight-year-old who can't sit and pay attention in church, and so they always have to be at kiddie church. And, you know, those kids grow up, um, you know, in kiddie church with cupcakes and veggie tails, and mm. they're, oftentimes they're not really being taught doctrine, and they're not really being taught how to defend their faith. And so we, we want them to be able to sit and listen to something substantive, and uh, we think preparation at home is a big way to help them develop that ability. Nice segue into what I wanted to ask you, uh, because uh, you said apologetics begins at home, um, and it does. But some youth groups, they just want to occupy the kids' mind, I've just just give them a distraction. They, they just want to entertain them for an hour um, they're not really trying to pour into them, you know, ways to defend the faith, let alone biblical sound doctrine. They're, and some kids maybe are too young, and depending on what family they come from, they're not ready to learn it at Sunday school anyway. So you tell us a little bit about how you get that started, because one of your chapters is called Apologetics Begins at Home. I just got an email from a mom who sent her 13-year-old the youth group for the first time, and he came home and she said, well, what did you study? What was the lesson about? He said, we didn't really have a study or a lesson. Oh. He said, we played video games. And yep. she said, well, what did you play? So we played Fortnite. So she went online, looked it up, <laughs> saw that you get bonus points for shooting people in the head, and she contact, contacted the youth pastor and said, you know, is this really appropriate for 13-year-olds? And he basically gave her a lecture about being legalistic and she she wrote me, she's like, I'm just concerned. I talked to my senior pastor about it. He, of course, defended the youth pastor. Oh, and you know, she said, I was hoping that they would be reinforcing what we're doing at home, but they're just playing video games every week. And, and this isn't just a one-off. I mean, this is what they do. They right. just buy video games and have video game competitions. And so if you are expecting the church to disciple your child, you're sadly mistaken. Mm. If you're expecting the youth group to teach them apologetics, you are sadly mistaken. Uh, anything that those guys do that's positive is a, is a supplement to what you've done at home. But if you want your child to be able to defend the faith and to know what they believe and why their beliefs are true and to be able to communicate their beliefs to other people, you have to do it yourself. You have to teach them apologetics. You have to teach them a biblical worldview. And you can't do that if you don't know it yourself. 
So that requires study on the part of the parent so that you can teach your children. We have about five more minutes left. Israel Wayne, uh, the book is called Raising Them Up, uh, Parenting for Christians. A lot of moms have taken the brunt of this battle uh, on themselves, this uh, education battle, because dads historically have been the breadwinners and have been going out and working. Moms now are working too. And so the the kids are, if they're not in school, they're at a daycare or someone else is babysitting or whatever. So Israel, what are some challenges that you make specifically to fathers in, in your book? One really powerful passage in the New Testament is Ephesians 6 4. We know this passage, but I don't think we've delved into it deeply enough. Say that again, you, the passage? It's Ephesians chapter okay. 6, verse 4. Thank you. And so it says, Fathers, this is a King James rendering. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, most of us, we don't really know what nurture and admonition is necessarily. We're like, okay, I'm supposed to do that, but what is that? What does it look like? So the Greek word for nurture in that passage is the Greek word nuthesia, and it's the word from which we get the concept of nuthetic counseling or biblical counseling. So Paul is saying, fathers, you're supposed to act like a biblical counselor to your child. But what does a biblical counselor do with a client? You know, they learn how to listen. They learn how to be compassionate. They learn how to comfort. But they also, at times, have to learn how to correct and rebuke. They have to provide a game plan or a strategy for how to get out of bad habits and move on to successful ones. There's, there's a lot in just that one concept, that one word, nuthesia. Uh, but, but dads have to embrace that role of, I'm a biblical counselor for my child. Wow. Then the other word for admonition is the Greek word paideia. And paideia was a very universal word that encompassed everything that could be taught academically. So it's the Greek word for education, for learning, for school, for academy. Um, the Encyclopedia Britannica says that paideia includes history, civics, geography, uh, mathematics, language arts, you know, every academic subject that could possibly be taught in the Greek culture, philosophy, logic, rhetoric, all of that, gymnastics. All of that was contained in the word paideia. And so Paul says, fathers, you are responsible for your child's education. Fathers, you are responsible for paideia. And he doesn't say, fathers, train your children up in the paideia of the world, Mm. which is what 85% of evangelical Christian fathers do. They send their children to the world for their paideia. He says, your children need to be trained up in the paideia of the Lord. And the paideia of the Lord is very different and antithetical and opposite to the paideia of the world. And so fathers are given commands to teach and instruct children in the Scripture more than twice as often as mothers, which is counterintuitive to us because we've been taught that mothers are supposed to teach and discipline children. But every passage in the Bible that has to do with discipline is either stated generically or is directed to fathers. Mm. Never once is discipline directed to a mother. Wow. And more, than twice, and more than twice as often, commands are given to fathers to teach and instruct than are specifically given to mothers. So this idea that men just have to go out and bring home a paycheck is not a biblical view of parenting. But I find that most Christians have no idea what the Scripture actually teaches on education, what it teaches about parenting, what it teaches about marriage, what it teaches about our roles as fathers and mothers. We're ignorant, and our churches aren't teaching us, and that's why I've written the books that I've written, because I want to help people learn 
to develop a biblical theology of parenting, family, education, and family life. What translation did you read that verse from? King James. King James. Okay, New American Standard says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And uh, so it's obviously similar concepts. Here we are talking about raising up godly children. You're throwing out Greek words. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> very, very helpful. But that's why you've got that chapter on apologetics begins at home. Israel Wayne, uh, people can learn so much from your books. And I thank you for taking the time to be with us today on Stand Up For The Truth. The book is available on your website, and it's also on Amazon. It's called Raising Them Up. And we'll put it, obviously, linked to it in the podcast notes today. Uh, Israel, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you, I'm sure, in the near future. God bless you, brother. God bless you. I'd encourage people to visit familyrenewal.org. That's our website, and you can get a copy of our book there. Thank you. God bless. Great. God bless you, familyrenewal.org. When we come back, we'll talk about guests the rest of this week. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now we wrap up today's Stand Up for the Truth. We've got a busy week. Um, by the way, we extended that interview with Israel Wayne. I was going to get into some, to some media bias issues that I've been writing about that for so many years, and it's such a big problem in our country. I caution you against the mainstream media. I really do strongly recommend you uh, tune them out. But we'll talk more about that. Uh, Thursday is a special show we're dedicating to exposing the liberal media, and we're talking about news and media malpractice. Tomorrow, Holly Pivik. Her website is Spirit of Error, so it's a discernment website. We'll talk to her. Uh, you'll hear from Don Vino, Midwest Christian Outreach, on Wednesday, Thursday, our media bias program. And Friday, Pastor Chris Quintana is back with us. He never has any strong opinions on what's going on with the government in our country. I'm kidding. You'll hear from him. So another busy week. Thank you so much, as always, for sharing our podcasts on social media because we are shadow banned on Facebook. You will need to go to our Facebook page to see our posts, but please share them. God bless you and keep speaking the truth about things that matter.